Welcome back to season two of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. Today, I'm talking to Dr. John Abramson, who's published several papers looking at statin data to discuss the facts you need to know before deciding with your doctor whether to take a statin or not. Statins are drugs that lower cholesterol levels, and the numbers of people recommended to take them continues to go up. Just this year, the UK's National Institute of Clinical Excellence, NICE, has extended its statin recommendations to those with less than 10% 10-year risk of heart disease. Yet interestingly, the vast majority of the clinical trial data had been collected 10 years ago. So I wanted to find out on what basis these recommendations are being made. I was particularly keen to do this podcast because in recent months, so many people have asked me about statins and have been unclear about exactly what the potential benefits and risks are for them. And these benefits will vary depending on if you're male or female and whether you're at high or low risk from heart disease. John also explains what we know about the side effects of these drugs. And just to note, in this podcast, we talk about US and UK recommendations, but both are based on the same clinical trial data, which countries across the world rely on. The key difference is the US measures cholesterol in milligrams per deciliter and the UK in millimoles per litre. Confusing, I know. I think it would be so helpful if countries could standardise these measures to convert milligrams per deciliter to millimoles per litre. All you need to do is divide by 18. And there are various calculators online that can also do this for you. But before we get to the interview with John about statins, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more, you can sign up to my Substack account, which is liztucker.substack.com. Go to my podcast website at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. And if you'd like to financially support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this. So even a small amount a month makes a huge difference. And you can provide support at patreon.com slash what your GP doesn't tell you or via my website, which, as I mentioned, is what your GP doesn't tell you dot com. Many thanks. Now back to the interview with John. Dr. John Abramson is based at the Harvard Medical School where he teaches healthcare policy. He's written several books, including Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine, and most recently, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. John consults as an expert in litigation involving the pharmaceutical industry. And he was on the podcast a few months ago discussing the drug Neurontin. Here's his interview. Good to see you again, John. Thank you very much indeed for joining the podcast today. Liz, it's a pleasure to be back with you. So I think a good place to start our conversation is why someone would take a statin. Can you explain the theory behind how statins are supposed to work? Yes. Statins reduce the amount of LDL or bad cholesterol in the bloodstream. They do do that, and they do it quite effectively. The issue is that having a lower LDL level is not in and of itself a health benefit. Reducing the risk of serious heart disease or stroke or cardiovascular death is a benefit. And where the facts are getting muddied up a bit is the relationship between lowering LDL 
and having bona fide health benefits. And that's where the discussion is focused. Because I think it's fair to say historically, the general medical consensus was that high cholesterol was linked to heart disease and stroke. But I think it's true to say that a number of doctors have become increasingly sceptical and that other factors such as inflammation may be either more important or at least key. Possibly. The inflammation theory, I think, came in with the ability to measure C-reactive protein. And one wonders if this is not another example of having a tool that may or may not work, but then assigning or attributing too much benefit to that tool. So I, I think the real issue is not what the mechanism of statins is or are, but what their effect in reducing bona fide serious cardiovascular risk is. So John, we know an increasing number of people prescribe statins across the world every year, both high and low risk patients. But there seems to be a lack of data available for women who take these drugs. So can we look first at low risk women? Back in 2001, guideline recommendations by the US National Cholesterol Education Programme recommended statins for both healthy men and women who didn't have a history of heart disease, but did have two risk factors, one of which was a 10-year risk of heart disease between 10 and 20%, and a low-density lipoprotein, otherwise known as LDL, level of 130 milligrams per deciliter or higher. And that statin recommendation was that exercise or diet hadn't helped lower cholesterol. So this new recommendation had a major impact on the number of people who were then recommended to take a statin. Correct. It significantly increased the number, and especially women. The guidelines stated specifically that these recommendations applied to men and women equally. And then on page 200 and something of those guidelines, the table showed that data to support this recommendation are generally lacking for women being treated with statins, women at low risk. In other words, what the guidelines were saying is that they didn't have data to support those recommendations for women. Yet the claim was, and I think very few doctors understood the disclaimer on page 204 or something, the claim was that the benefit was equal in men and women. And the issue was what they had done, they'd simply extrapolated the data from men of a similar risk. That's exactly right. As we'll see, as this hour goes on, we'll talk. But the key is what do the data show? Not what your theory is, not what your assumptions are, but what does your data actually show? And it seems to me that when guidelines that are going to put millions, tens of millions of Americans on statins come out, there's a responsibility not to hypothesize that women will have the same effect as men, same benefit as men. The responsibility is to show that the data that prove that statins are beneficial for low-risk women. So at this stage, despite the fact statins had been on the market for 14 years, there hadn't been enough women in the original clinical trials to determine what effect statins had on women. Well, that's what they said, but you could state it a different way, that 14 years after statins had been on the market, the drug companies had not shown that there was a benefit in low-risk women, period. If they want to do more studies, they can do more studies. If they want to include more women, if they want to market their drug to low-risk women, 
then the drug companies ought to be held to a standard of doing the studies that actually prove their claim. But they didn't. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we know that heart disease can present very differently in women. So therefore, that the assumption that statins will work the same way or a similar way in men and women seems odd. Yes. Specifically in this situation, it seems odd. And the guidelines and the meta-analyses and the articles can be presented in a way so that doctors believe that evidence-based medicine shows that statins are effective for women at low risk when that had not been proven. But do the experts writing these guidelines not have a responsibility? Because they clearly knew that there wasn't the data on women because it's on page 204. But the truth is, most people aren't going to look for that. But surely they are supposedly the people who we are relying on in this instant. That's exactly right. And the only reason I got to page 204 was I was writing a book. I had, at that point, I was making the transition from being a family doctor to being a researcher and was really taking a deep dive into these documents. And I decided to read the whole 200 and whatever page guideline. Now, why did the doctors, the experts who wrote those guidelines, allow that to be obfuscated? Clearly, put in the back of the book. I think some of it has to do with financial conflicts of interest. But I think a bigger conflict of interest is this groupthink phenomenon. Kuhn called it a paradigm phenomenon. But experts and regular docs have these cultural beliefs about what they think they know. And they think they know that statins are unequivocally a beneficial therapy to prevent the risk of heart disease across the board. And that decreases their critical look at the data, which we're going to get into and hopefully put a finer microscope on it than the experts who write the guidelines have. Then three years on, 2004, there are additional guidelines. And these updated guidelines, this time there's additional data from five new trials. And the LD level recommendations is further lowered to 100 milligrams per deciliter. So therefore, patients will need to increase their dosage to reach that. And again, there doesn't seem to be much information on women. Well, there was a little bit of information. There were five new trials that became available between 2001 and 2004, and that's why these guidelines were updated. The single trial that addressed the risk of heart attack in women and statins was the ASCOT trial. And that showed that that statins actually increased the heart attack risk for women at low risk who were taking statins. Now, that wasn't a statistically significant finding, but it certainly didn't support lowering the LDL threshold that would therefore raise the number of women in, in the United States who were being recommended to take statins by their doctors. So they lowered the threshold from 130 to 100. They increased a huge number of women in that lowering. And there was not only no evidence, but there was some evidence to show that the statins might be counterproductive. And this was a statin Lipitor. Yes. But interestingly, as you say, didn't show benefit to women. But on that trial, the Lipitor failed to reduce the risk of death in men and women combined. Yes, of death. Right. But that doesn't mean there's no benefit. But I suppose, you know, a lot of the statin marketing is around reducing your risk of mortality. Yeah. I suppose that would be one of the things I would be looking at before I decided to take a statin. 
we got to parse that a little bit. Okay. Because we have a benefit in terms of cardiovascular events, in terms of myocardial infarction and stroke, and we need to look at those numbers differently. Again, we've increased the number of people who are taking statins. And in fact, in this case, when you looked at the authors of the guidelines, I think you discovered that eight out of nine had financial ties to the statin industry. That is correct. And then yet again, 2013, further guidelines come out. Again, the recommendations for treating healthy people are lowered. Now they're recommended for all people with a 7.5% of greater 10-year risk of cardiovascular disease. And the requirement that the LDL had to be above a certain level was removed. So now statins are being recommended in practice for over two-thirds of Americans over 60. Yes. So you now publish a paper in the BMJ looking at these recommendations for statin use in both healthy men and women. And what did you find? So the recommendations that were made in the United States, um, this is a very important part of the story. The experts who made those recommendations did not have access to the actual data from the clinical trials. In fact, when trials are published in the the most respected journals, Lancet, New England Journal, and JAMA, they're peer-reviewed. And we doctors are taught to believe that that peer-review process assures the accuracy and uh, reasonable completeness of the data. What doctors don't understand is that the peer reviewers are not given the actual data from the clinical trial. They're just given the data that the manufacturers and authors have chosen to put in the manuscript. These are not independently analyzed data that are published in the medical journals. Point I want to make, sum this up, is that the experts are not making their recommendations based on the actual data. They're making their recommendations like the slaves in Plato's allegory of the cave, they're making their 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 the recommendations based on the shadows on the cave wall, but they haven't analyzed the data. So the one group who do have access to the data are the cholesterol treatment trialists group, known as the CTT, which was set up in 1994 to pull together all the data of the various statin trials that the manufacturers can send to it. But this group, as stated in its protocol, can't release the data to anyone else. The cholesterol treatment trialists, located in part at at Oxford University, they have access to the data, but they won't release the data. They're not allowed to release the data. They could say that the time has come to open the books and that they won't participate in the meta-analyses any longer unless the data become available for outside inspection. And that 2013 article that we wrote was based on the CTT data, which the 2013 guidelines in the United States relied heavily upon. So when you published your paper in the BMJ in 2013, obviously having to look just at the incomplete data, what did you find? So what we found is that the CTT meta-analysis that had presented this data on effect of uh, the benefit of statins in low-risk people. And we just took what they said was the mission of their article to determine the benefit of statins in people with less than 20% 10-year risk. And we just recalculated the numbers that they presented 
to see if their data, we, could, we couldn't get underneath their data, but their data supported the claim that statins were beneficial in people at low risk of heart disease. And you found that there was no significant reduction in mortality. Correct. But there was a small, although statistically significant reduction in the risk of non-fatal heart attack and stroke. Correct. And what exactly were the figures on that, John? So what we found is that if you look at people with uh, less than 20% risk of heart disease over the next 10 years, uh, cardiovascular disease over the next 10 years, you have to treat 140 people with a statin for five years to prevent one non-fatal heart attack or stroke. Now, often the question is framed, should people at low risk take a statin? It leads to a binary answer, yes or no. And it's not a binary answer. People should be given the actual data and discuss it with their doctors. So the question is, would you want to take a statin for five years if you had a one out of 140 chance of avoiding a non-fatal heart attack or stroke? And some people will say yes, and some people will say no. But what I feel strongly about is people should not be told that they should be taking that based on those numbers. They should understand the numbers and make their own decision about risk with their doctors. So just going back, John, to this 140 figure, so 140 people have to take a statin for five years if they're at low risk, and one will benefit. We just talked earlier about the fact that there's a lack of evidence for low-risk women. So does that statistic apply to both men and women, or is that only men? It applies to the data for men and women combined. So if you look at the benefit of reducing the risk of cardiovascular events in women who do not have a history of heart disease, you have to treat 200 women for five years in order to prevent a single cardiovascular event. And John, your BMJ paper suggested there might be an overstatement of the benefit because people are more likely to have cardiovascular procedures such as stents and angiograms if their LDL levels are higher, which means people taking statins may be less likely to have these procedures. That's exactly right, Liz. When people are in these statin studies, some are taking a statin and some are taking a placebo. If they have symptoms albeit vague symptoms, and go to the hospital, and the doctor's deciding about how to um, diagnose and treat their problem, those with a lower LDL level are less likely to have a, a revascularization procedure. So that effectively, partially unblinds the study because the docs can guess which patients are taking the statin. So John, after the BMJ paper is published, Professor Rory Collins of the Cholesterol Treatment Trialist Group, known as the CTT, asked that the paper be retracted. And in fact, an expert panel was set up by the BMJ editor to look into this. And that concluded that there was one misinterpretation in your paper of how another researcher had described the level of statin side effects. But the panel found there were no grounds for retracting the paper. Correct. It was unanimous that there were no grounds for correcting the paper. We did misinterpret one paper. It's basically what happened was you'd said that the side effects of statins occur in about 18 to 20 percent of patients. And you'd made that statement based on a referenced observational study by Zhang and colleagues that said that the rate of reported statin-related events was nearly 18 percent. That's correct. 
the mistake we made was we didn't subtract out the baseline number of complaints people not taking statins had. We missed that. We made a mistake, and, and the paper deserved a correction for sure. And the BMJ expert panel did also note that the individual patient level data for the relevant trials was held in confidence by the cholesterol treatment trialist group, the CTT, and had not been made available for public scrutiny by those who questioned their interpretations. Yeah, that's right. The panel called for the anonymized individual patient data from the clinical statin trials to be made available for independent scrutiny. But the issue died. It's just so hard to keep these issues on the front burner of the public consciousness when they're not covered adequately by the press. So in June 2020, there's further debate between you and the cholesterol treatment trialist group when they suggest that statins should be given to more low-risk patients. They suggest, based on a 2019 meta-analysis, that all people over 75 should take a statin regardless of whether they have cardiovascular disease or not. Correct. When we looked at the data, it turns out that for people over 75, for people who do not have a history of uh, cardiovascular disease, you have to treat a thousand such people for one year in order to prevent a cardiovascular event. So you're going to treat a thousand people age 75 and older for one year 999 are not going to benefit. And I don't think that it's a rational recommendation to say those people should be treated with statins. I think doctors and patients should discuss this fact. They get a patient over 75 and they say, statins could help you some, and you have a one out of a thousand chance of being helped over the next year. And we don't know what the incidence of side effects is in all people, and especially in elderly people, and you make the decision about whether you think you should take a statin or not. But to tell people they should take a statin, to have doctors in a position where they're literally, you know, forced to tell patients that they should be taking a statin, I don't think that's right. The CTT didn't question your interpretation of the data. Correct. It's unquestionable. I mean, it's right. It's in black and white in their article. If you can read it with a clear enough eye, you have to be willing to put aside your preconceptions and just look at what's on the page in black and white. And there it is. It's indisputable. I suppose the bigger question for a lot of people is whether you're a man or woman at higher risk, how does the situation change in terms of whether you should take a statin or not? Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. For people who already have heart disease, if you treat the people who've had heart disease, cardiovascular disease, with a statin for five years, one out of 30 will not have a cardiovascular event when you treat with a statin. So one out of 30 will benefit from not having a cardiovascular event, and 29 out of 30 will not benefit. That's for people who've had a cardiovascular event. Now, Again, the experts turn and say, well, that means people who have had uh, a cardiovascular event should take a statin. But I don't think that's fair. I think people who have had a cardiovascular event should be engaged in a discussion with their physician that statin will reduce their chance of having a cardiovascular event in one out of 30 people and then help the patient to make a decision. Now, frankly, as a physician, I would lean 
toward recommending to the person that they might want to take the statin if they don't have a side effect. But I wouldn't tell the person they should have take a statin. I don't think it's the doctor's province to do that. I think it's to inform the patient and let the patient make a relevant decision. Now, but if you want to talk about preventing cardiovascular deaths in people who've already had heart disease, you have to treat 80 of those people with a statin for five years in order to prevent one cardiovascular death. And John, you've raised a concern that you think that taking a statin could cause an overconfidence in the drug's ability to protect from cardiovascular disease. Absolutely. I think that's the problem. And that's a larger problem. It's not just in statins and cardiovascular disease. The drug companies are funding most of the research. 96% of the research is about drugs and devices. And only 4% of the research in the United States is about how to make people healthier. So what we get is in all of these statin trials, all of the major statin trials, they test giving people statins or giving them a placebo. That's the way to sell statins, but that's not the way to help doctors understand the best way to prevent heart disease. The information that doctors need is not a two-arm study, but a four-arm study. You randomize people into lifestyle modification or no lifestyle modification, and within each of those two categories, you then randomize those folks into statins or no statins. In that way, we could find out the relative benefit of cardiovascular disease prevention associated with active lifestyle modification compared to taking statins. And that's what doctors need to know. And because we're not measuring lifestyle modification like diet and exercise, we don't know how powerful those would be compared to a statin. We know overall that obviously, if you want to have a healthy heart, stop smoking, exercise, eat a healthy diet. But we don't know the power of those individual interventions. We've got clues. We don't know it for sure because the randomized controlled trials haven't been done. Observational trials suggest that about 80% of cardiovascular disease could be prevented by adopting a healthy lifestyle, and maybe 20% could be prevented by taking statins for higher-risk people. But it's not an apples-to-apples comparison because the uh, lifestyle modification is based on observational data because the statin manufacturers won't pay for a real study to compare their products to lifestyle modification. Because what will be really useful to know is if I have a particular form of exercise for a year and I take a statin for a year, what's the difference in the power of those two interventions? And being able to compare those against each other, we just don't have. We don't have it. And it may be that the optimal therapy is to do both. I I don't know what the answer is. Now, John, a number of patients report side effects while on statins. What are the issues that they commonly report? Most commonly, they report muscle symptoms. And what evidence do we have that the drugs are related to these side effects? We just plain don't know the answer. And we don't know the answer because the statin trials did not ask the question. Uh, Only one out of 44 statin trials actually prospectively uh, looked for side effects, uh, looked for muscle uh, side effects. And what the study found was that after six months, the people who were on statins had 4.8% greater incidence of muscle complaints than the people who were not on statins. 
there are two problems with that study. It is a randomized control, or was a randomized controlled trial, but A, it was of short duration, six months, and B, it only included healthy people who averaged 40 years of age. That trial certainly doesn't represent the general population of people taking statins. It provides evidence that there is a significant problem, but we don't know what the real incidence of the problem is. So the data on side effects is observational and um, recreated from medical records. If you want an accurate answer, you have to put it in the randomized controlled trial, and we just don't have it. And the FDA on our side of the Atlantic did not make the statin manufacturers include prospective searching for side effects in their research designs. Basically, if you don't look for a particular side effect in a trial, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it because the extent to which it's found is going to depend on the interviews that were held between uh, the patients and the people running the clinical trial. And you're not going to find it if you don't try and elicit whether people are suffering from specific side effects. There have been other suggestions of side effects, such as cognitive and neurological problems. Yes. Those are based on subjective reports. Unfortunately, is the only way we can get the data because a randomized controlled trial hasn't searched. There are counterclaims that statins don't cause side effects. Because last year, there was some research funded by the British Heart Foundation that was very widely reported here, which suggested that statins are not the cause of muscle pain in over 90% of people who report symptoms. Correct. I can't critique that. I don't know what the answer is. I do know that had the studies been done the right way initially, had the regulators told the statin makers that they won't approve their drugs unless they include prospective searching for common side effects, they won't approve the drugs. You know, those horses are out of the barn. And now there are efforts to go back and figure that out. And I don't know what the answer is. I do know that cardiologists who seem to me to be clear thinking, you know, respected academic docs, many of them say that they think about 20% of the people who take statins have a side effect. But again, that's anecdotal too. And we just don't know. And I think in 2015, the European Atherosclerosis Society issued a consensus statement. This is data from registries and observational studies which reported statin-related muscle symptoms in between 7 to 29% of people taking statins. Right. But of course, the CTT group would say that is a statistic that is much too high and likely to put people off taking statins. Correct. So it all boils down to the fact that we can't get the raw data, so no one really knows what level of side effects patients experience on these drugs. We can't get the raw data, and we don't know what the benefits of the drugs really are until the raw data are independently analyzed. So we just don't know. So sometimes folks say, look, we should get the data so that we can figure out the frequency of side effects. But the frequency of side effects is not going to be in the data because it wasn't recorded. You're not going to answer questions that you don't ask. Right. No matter how complete your access is, the questions weren't asked and you're not going to get an answer. And Liz, let me just let me just say we're talking about statins here and statins are a very important discussion and people have the right to know what we do know and what we don't know. 
But this is the same problem with all drugs. The doctors think they know because the clinical studies are reported in peer-reviewed journals, and the doctors think they know what happened in the trial, but they don't, and they don't know they don't know. It's an enormous crisis. It's ridiculous. These scientific standards precede the Royal Society of London's formation in 1660 when they adopted the motto, nullius in verba, which means take nobody's word for it. That was 1660. And now we've gone back behind. We're pre-enlightenment, where the way we now treat drug data, we're not faced with the authority of the church, but we're faced with the authority of the market and the interests of the corporations. It's got to be named. It's a crisis. It's just almost impossible to get this story out. But what's extraordinary, John, statins are being taken by more and more people, and yet we still haven't got access to that data. And what you're describing is the data doesn't seem to really have changed. We haven't got dramatically different data. However, there's a continuing process where the guidelines reduce the level at which you take a statin. So therefore, the number of people who will be recommended by their doctor to take statin gets larger and larger. That's correct. We're not going to get new data that significantly changes the data we have because the patent has run out on the statins now. Nobody has an interest, an economic interest in doing that because the drugs are generic. So we've got a system that's very poorly designed. It it highly rewards drug companies for setting up studies that are designed for success when the drug is on patent. But then all of a sudden, everyone goes away and leaves that knowledge. But last year, there was a big meta-analysis, which was conducted, I think, on 19 of the 21 trials that reported data on all-cause mortality, and 18 trials which reported data on heart attack and strokes. And what these researchers wanted to do was evaluate the most up-to-date information on absolute risk reduction for relationships between statins, LDL cholesterol, deaths and disease. The absolute risk reduction was 0.8% for all-cause mortality, 1.3% for heart attacks, and 0.4% for strokes. And then in secondary prevention, 0.9% for all-cause mortality, 2.2% for heart attack, and 0.7% for stroke in secondary prevention. It's underwhelming, Liz, but it's important to remember in this study, the authors do a great job of analyzing the data, but they break the data down into the chance that a statin will reduce your risk of death, period, the chance that the statin will reduce your risk of MI, period, or the chance that your statin will reduce your risk of stroke. In the real world, doctors and patients are interested in the chance that statins will reduce your risk of all three. And you can't, from the data in this study, I don't think you can get to the chance that you're going to get an overall cardiovascular benefit. And it it would have been helpful if the authors had included that. So what you're saying, John, is there may be some overlap between the three categories. So, for example, some of the people who died might also have been included in the heart attack figures. Yeah, let me explain. In the BMJ article, we looked at mortality separately, and and then we looked at uh, heart attacks and strokes. The issue is that there was not a significant reduction in mortality. 
So we then said that the reduction that was found was limited to non-fatal events. In the data in this meta-analysis, I don't think they put it all together to see if there was a significant reduction and then parse it out. And I think that's important. One of the paper's authors, Marianne DeMarcy, said, we concluded that the benefits of statins were minimal and most of the trial participants who took statins derived no clinical benefit. I think that's right. I respect Marianne DeMarcy tremendously. I think the paper would be more helpful if they had put together deaths, heart attacks, and strokes in one category, because a patient isn't going to make a decision about a statin on the possibility of reducing heart attacks, but not strokes or deaths. They want to know what's the overall cardiovascular benefit reduction in serious cardiovascular events. You can't just put the categories together because you don't know how many people are exclusively in one category or another. Because there may be some people who are in all three groups, basically. Correct. There is overlap between those groups. Correct. Let's, for argument's sake, say there was overlap between those groups. Even if we were to add them all up, that's 2.1. That would be 2.5%. So that would be a 2.5% reduction in absolute risk reduction in the statin trials. But I think that that is a large overestimation of the benefit because the categories aren't mutually exclusive. And I think the other problem with how statistics are often presented, I think there's a lot of confusion about whether people look at absolute risk reduction or relative risk reduction. And sometimes in the same paper, you see both put together. And it'd be helpful, John, if you could just explain the difference between the two. Yes. If we had a product that prevented you from getting hit by lightning, and it reduced your chance of getting hit by lightning by 50%, you might say, well, gee, that's that's worth a lot of money to me. Maybe I'd pay $500 for something that reduced my chance of getting hit by lightning. But if your chance of getting hit by lightning without the, the device is one in a million, and that means that you have to treat 2 million people in order to, to prevent a death, then it's not such a good device. So absolute risk is the risk of an event happening, which in the example you mentioned, John, is a one in a million chance of being hit by lightning. So in medical terms, absolute risk is the risk of developing a particular disease over a period of time. But relative risk is used to compare the risk in two groups of people. So in your lightning example, my risk of being struck down by lightning has gone from one in a million to one in two million. So a relative risk reduction of 50%. Yes. So for example, if you look at people who are older than 75 years of age, who do not have a history of cardiovascular disease, the people on a statin had reduced the risk of having a cardiovascular event by 8%. In other words, the people who took a statin had 8% less chance of having a cardiovascular event than the people who didn't take the statin. But if you look at the absolute risk reduction, the absolute risk reduction is 0.1% per year, which means you need to treat 1,000 people for a year in order to prevent one event. So, Liz, if you're the doctor and you're discussing this with the patient and you say, well, you may want to take this statin because people who take the statin have 8% fewer 
um, cardiovascular events than the people who don't take the statin. Or you say, you may want to take the statin because one out of a thousand people benefits by not having a heart attack or a stroke. Those are very different numbers. And that's the difference between relative risk and absolute risk. So when we talk about whether making a decision between doctors and patients about whether a particular patient wants to take the statin, it's the absolute risk reduction, not the relative risk reduction. Now, this year, the UK's Institute of Clinical Excellence, NICE, is suggesting that statins also be considered for people who haven't had a cardiovascular event and who have a 10-year risk of less than 10% of having such an event. What impact, John, do you think statins will have on their risk of heart disease? Right. So that decision, looking at people who have between a 0 and 10% chance of having a cardiovascular event over the next 10 years, when we look at the chance that statin therapy will prevent a cardiovascular death in that group for men and women combined, it's one out of a thousand, reduced by one out of a thousand over five years, which by the way is not statistically significant. Now, again, I don't think we should be making these decisions in a bureaucratic and non-granular way. But if a patient comes to me and they have less than a 10% risk of cardiovascular disease over the next 10 years, and they say, I'm worried about cardiovascular death, should I take a statin, doc? I would say to low-risk men and women that 999 out of 1,000 people aren't going to benefit, and you should make your own decision. So, John, are we able to split those figures into men and women? No. So those are the mortality figures for low-risk men and women. What does the data tell us about their risk of a non-fatal heart attack or stroke? What we found and published in our BMJ paper in 2013 showed that for people who have a low risk of cardiovascular disease defined as less than 10% risk over the next 10 years, you have to treat 167 people, 167 people for five years with a statin in order to prevent one major cardiovascular event. John, earlier on, you mentioned a risk of one in 140, and now you're saying a risk of 167 to prevent a single non-fatal cardiovascular event. Can you explain the difference between those two figures? Yeah, that's 140 for less than 20% 10-year risk, and this is 167 for less than 10% 10-year risk. So just going back to NICE's recommendations for considering statins, for low-risk patients. On what basis have they issued this advice? I don't know the answer. And I think there's two problems. One is, given this data, does that make sense? And the other is this paternalistic attitude about telling doctors and patients what they should be doing, when in fact, people, doctors and patients should be making individually-based decisions based on patients' values informed by numbers, like you have a one out of 167 chance of avoiding a first major cardiovascular event. But I think the thing is, John, when new recommendations come out, people assume that's on the basis of new data. Yeah. Let me just say for the record, NICE is now making this recommendation in 2023, 
we wrote our paper in 2013, and there may be new studies that have come on board, but the vast majority of the clinical trial evidence was already collected in 2013. So these numbers aren't going to change very much if they change at all. You can see why people, both doctors and patients, find it confusing. It's confusing to people. It's confusing to doctors. You can't practice evidence-based medicine without evidence. And I feel like I'm whispering into a hurricane that this is a major crisis, that doctors don't have access to good information. I know no other approach than to try and con- to have discussions like this and try and make the gravity of this problem and, and the extent of this problem available to the public and to doctors. So final question, John. Are there any circumstances you can see in which you would take a statin? Yes. Which would be? Because I don't want to lose my relationship with a cardiologist. And I negotiated a minimal dose of statin and we would go forward. I don't think it'll hurt me and I don't think it'll help me. But the doctors are so convinced that statins are beneficial and a must for patients at higher risk that they can't fathom having a doctor-patient relationship with somebody who won't abide by that. So that's interesting, John. So you're not taking a statin because you think it's medically required. You're taking it because you think that's the best way to maintain a healthy relationship with your cardiologist. Because it's medically in my interest to have a good relationship with a really good cardiologist. That's really interesting. And, And unfortunately, I need that. Do you want to hear an interesting anecdote? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A few months ago, I, I've had a, a significant cardiac arrhythmia for seven years, idiopathic ventricular tachycardia. And I've been shocked on my living room fo- floor, and I've taken numerous ambulance rides. And it got critically worse last summer and fall to the point where I was in chronic ventricular tachycardia without receiving IV lidocaine. Can you explain what that is to people who aren't medics? Lidocaine is an antiarrhythmic drug that's only available IV. And it's an older drug. It's not used that frequently. But for my particular arrhythmia, it happened to suppress. But it stopped working. And I had to be on IV lidocaine constantly in order to not be in ventricular tachycardia. And I got transferred into one of the most well-respected hospitals in Boston. And I had a complex cardiac ablation where two world-class doctors worked on me for six hours. One went up my groin into my heart, and one went into the outside of my heart through my chest wall, poked a dilette through my chest wall and threaded a catheter into the pericardial lining of my heart. Together, they could find the source of the electrical signal that was, at this point, going to take my life. And they succeeded. They got it. So two days later, I was in the ICU recovering, and a cardiologist came by to make rounds. And he pulled up a chair like good doctors do. And the position he was in, I could see him, and I could see the cardiac monitor. So I knew what kind of arrhythmia I was having. And I knew this this conversation was going to get heated. And I thought, this will be a good test, because I can watch what happens under stress. And he started to tell me that I should be taking more of cholesterol-lowering drugs. And I said, well, the studies you're you're citing, you really shouldn't rely on those. And I said, well, do you know that the peer reviewers who review those studies don't have access to the actual data? And he said, well, 
they have access to the statistical analysis plans and the protocols. And I said, no, 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 that doesn't count. You're trusting as evidence-based medicine data that have not been independently vetted. Do you know that? And he said, well, yes, I do. And I said to him, well, how can you possibly present yourself as a learned intermediary, bringing the best of medical science to the service of your patients when you know you don't have access to the real data? And he just shrugged. And that was the end of the conversation. And what was your cardiac monitor doing at this time, John? I was doing well. I did well. No, the docs who fixed me did a great job. And that's the dilemma is there's good stuff in this medicine. What we want to do is weed out the consequences of non-transparency of data. So now it's five months later and knock on wood, I'm doing fine. And I'm hugely grateful for this fantastically complicated procedure that they did on me. And yet here we are in the same hospital with the same doctors belonging to the same organization who acknowledge that they're going forward without having access to the data, it's unthinkable to me. Well, John, I'm so pleased the operation was a success. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Liz. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. The podcast will now be taking a short break and will return on the 30th of May. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review. And you can follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker and find out more about the podcast at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>